and welcome to W Chat. Today we are very excited to talk with Dr. Jackie Abdullah, who works with Spanish-speaking populations and undocumented or underinsured women. And before we get to know Jackie a little bit, I just want to say a few things. When this airs, this will be kind of post things that are happening, obviously, when we're recording this. But I want to give a special shout out to my partner, Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. I've really been kind of pinching her over the last few weeks to squeeze (laughs) in some more recordings um, before she gives birth tomorrow. And she's also been doing this amidst moving into a house, a new house and kid who has been barfing all over said brand new house. (laughs) And like I said, uh, also giving birth tomorrow. And so I just want to give a special thank you to her and say it's a privilege to be your partner. And I really thank you for putting up with me being like, hey, how about one more recording? (laughs) And then also within that note, I want to say a special thank you to Dr. Abdallah because we were originally supposed to record this a couple days ago. But again, we she understands that we are also not just podcasters and trying to run a business, but also parents. And because of said barfing child, (laughs) we had to reschedule and we were fortunate that she was very flexible with us. And so, um, Dr. Abdallah, we thank you for being flexible with us in in moving it to today so that we could squeeze this in before Stephanie squeezes one out. (laughs) 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 um, On that note, thank you both. And it's exciting. This is Stephanie and I are in the same building, which is new for us and probably won't happen for another little while. So it's an exciting day. Um, And we also wish Stephanie many blessings as as she welcomes her new tiny person tomorrow, and that I hopefully won't pester her too much over the next <laughs> few weeks. <laughs> so, thank all right, Stephanie, I'll hand this off to you to introduce our guest. <laughs> all right, thank you, Nicole, and you're next. <laughs> Just as a little caveat, Nicole is expecting in March too, so it'll be her turn soon enough. <laughs> yeah, to be pinched in, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so Dr. Abdallah, so we just want to give our listeners a little background about who we're speaking with. And we would like you to talk a little bit about yourself. So if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about your background, like your education and training, and where you currently practice and the types of patients you serve. Well, thank you, Nicole and Stephanie, both so much for having me. And you are two amazing women doing all of this and parenting and working. So a little bit about myself. I grew up in New Jersey. I have a pretty large immediate family, six siblings, and uh, all my family is still living in New Jersey currently. Uh, And that's where I completed my medical school training at Robert Wood Johnson, which is part of the state school Rutgers University. And I went out to California, Northern California, to complete my family medicine residency training, which I'm in my final year of that right now. And so that's my current practice. I split my time between half of my time about in a clinic at a FQHC, a federally qualified health center, and the other half in hospital that kind of acts as a safety net hospital for the Northern California area. And so at the clinic, we serve patients of all ages. As a family medicine doctor, I see pediatrics, geriatrics, do a lot of women's health. So we do birth control, prenatal care, pap smears, colposcopies, abortion care. The hospital, we 
and all of the, the patients in that clinic are either uninsured or have Medi-Cal, which is the California version of Medicaid. And then at the hospital, we see the uninsured patients or patients with Medicaid. And there we do inpatient adult medicine, as well as we run the labor and delivery floor. And in both those settings, I'd say on any given day, about half the patients I see are monolingual Spanish-speaking Another question that we like to ask all of our guests is what informs your perspective or your practice? Like, why do you do what you do? What, what is most valuable to you in your practice? Or do you have a philosophy for your practice? Yeah, that's always a tough question to put into words. But I think what really got me into family medicine is really working with the underserved, empowering these patients to improve their health and advocating for a system that provides equal access, which, as you ladies know, right now in the US, there isn't a universal or equal access to care. But I think as physicians and healthcare providers, we're in a pretty unique position to reach out to these populations and provide care where there otherwise wouldn't be. I think particularly in women's health, that's true. And growing up, my both my parents for a very long time were uninsured and didn't complete college education. And so watching them kind of trying to navigate the healthcare system and struggle to do so was, I think, even more inspiring to work with the patient population that I do today. I think that's great sort of have firsthand experience what that's like. And that you've used your past experiences to inform your practice today and obviously giving you passion to do what to do what you're doing. So I think we'll go ahead and jump in. Like we said, today we're going to discuss working with Spanish-speaking populations, which uh, Dr. Abdallah talked about encountering a lot of monolingual Spanish-speaking women. And so our first question is, how do you or your clinic create a woman-centered environment for Spanish-speaking women? I think that really can be split into two parts. In terms of the clinic, I think just the breadth of services that are provided and that the clinic has worked really, really hard to provide for these women in and of themselves are patient-centered. So, for example, really giving access to comprehensive women's health, which means that we rarely have to refer to outside OBGYNs who wouldn't necessarily be able to see these patients who don't have insurance or who just have Medicaid. So like I mentioned before, we do colposcopies in the clinic, we do pap smears in the clinic, provide prenatal care in the clinic, we do ultrasounds in the clinic. And also I think our clinic does a great job of connecting women who are underfunded to resources to help fund their care. And so California, I think, is really special in that we have a lot of state programs and ways to help patients who otherwise wouldn't qualify for any sort of insurance, particularly with undocumented people. So there's a state program to provide free birth control to all of those women, as well as providing Medicaid for undocumented women when they're pregnant, which is kind of unique. So I think our clinic does a really great job of connecting women with those resources. And we also provide all materials in both English and Spanish. So everything that we put out, whether it's consent forms or birth control pamphlets or vaccine information sheets, they're all in English and in Spanish automatically. Even we have a program to give out 
free children's books to parents so that encourage them to read to their children. And all of those books are provided both in English and Spanish. And so I think they do a pretty great job of that. So before you talk about how you create the environment, I want to, I guess I want to stick on this, how your clinic does it first. Are there anything like visually within your clinic? You know, we've talked to some women who say, you know, I wish they had posters of women who look like me in their clinics. Do you guys have any sort of visual things that make women feel, you know, more woman-centered, more included? Yeah. Uh, so I, I've noticed I'm not involved in that sort of, I guess, marketing type of things. But I've noticed when I'm walking around the clinic, the pamphlets that we have for the lactation classes, for example, are pictures of actual providers and patients from our clinic. And so because we have such a large Spanish speaking population at our clinic, more often than not, those are the patients who are in the photos. And so I don't know if that was a conscious effort on the part of the clinic. I, I, I bet it was, but I've noticed that, yeah, a lot of those uh, kind of advertising resources do have women who look like the women that come to our clinic. And the other question I have, so because you have such a high population of Spanish-speaking women, are you trained to speak Spanish or do your front desk or how do you navigate the language part of it. Yeah. And so I'm an advanced Spanish speaker, but not a native Spanish speaker. And so I'm certified as an interpreter, but there are definitely times, you know, where there are, there's something nuanced that I know I can't get across or important things that get lost in translation. And so in those instances, I try to be very quick to use the interpreter. We unfortunately don't have in-person interpreters, which I know some clinics do have and I think is great. Unfortunately, we do not have access to that. So we have phone interpreters that we use. And so for the providers who do not speak Spanish, they have constant access to phone interpreters. Um, in terms of our front desk staff and our MAs, I'd say almost all of them speak Spanish, which is really great for our patients to call in and be able to talk to a native Spanish speaker right away. Yeah, I think that's definitely something that a lot of clinics don't have. So I, you know, and I don't know if you could speak to this. So for the clinics who, you know, don't wouldn't have the resources where their, you know, staff also speak Spanish and, and have physicians like you who are certified, you know, what can they do? Or what suggestions would you have? Like I said, if the resources are available, I think in-person interpreters are much they just logistically are easier. I think the patient feels more at ease and they're less cumbersome. You know, I've had to, for example, do a colposcopy using a phone interpreter. It is very difficult to hand the phone back and forth on speaker to a woman um, when you're across the room from her. So in-person interpreters, I think is really great if you're able to get access to that. And I think really, if you have a significant portion of a Spanish-speaking patient population, then there's really, in my mind, no excuse that the clinic wouldn't be able to hire front desk staff and other support staff from that community who speak Spanish natively. And so I guess my answer to that would be really just to look for those people and to hire them in your clinic and to prioritize that. 
Can I just go back a minute to the the phone issue with um, using interpreters over the phone? You know, some of uh, in Iowa and Kansas, where Nicole and I are, more rural areas, sometimes that is going to be the only option for clinics because they can't get in-person interpreters. Is there any tips or tricks that you use when you um, use that service to sort of make the patient feel more at ease or to make the visit go more smoothly? Some of the same tips just in general that I think I use in terms of positioning with patients in a room and body language. So, you know, rather one kind of end of the spectrum would be having the phone next to you and you're looking at the computer and typing and talking down to the phone and looking at the computer and not making any eye contact with the patient. I think that would be kind of on the end of the spectrum where it's pretty poor communication versus sitting right in front of the patient face to face, looking at them when you're speaking and when they are speaking back rather than kind of focusing and looking down and having the conversation with the phone, I think is really important. And then if I'm ever in a situation where I'm doing some sort of procedure where I can't pass the phone back and forth, because I've noticed that the, just the audio quality when you put those phones on speaker is really poor. And so you kind of have to hold it up to your ear. And then I usually hold it up to the patient's ear for them. But if you're doing a procedure, that can be challenging. And so I usually have my medical assistant for that come into the room and help kind of pass the phone back and forth just so that the, the patient can actually hear what the interpreter is saying. Yeah, that does sound challenging. <laughs> I was fortunate to work in a clinic where we had the personal, regardless of the language, but you know, we would have a agency that would come out, send a person out to interpret the visits face to face. So I haven't had to experience that, but it, it does sound challenging. No, and well, I have experienced that when I worked at the PEDS clinic, we had a family who spoke Swahili and so more ex- obscure language. And so we definitely had to use a translation service for that. And you're right, it, it can really change the whole dynamic when you're trying so hard to listen to what the interpreter is saying and transferring that phone back and forth, it really changes the dynamic that you experience also with that patient you otherwise if you both spoke the same language. So those are great tips. Thank you. That was a good question, Stephanie. I just had one more question. So primarily with Spanish speaking. So are you using this service even for your Spanish speaking women? Are you talking about for other languages? I wasn't sure if you were sometimes needing an interpreter to sort of get to, I guess, another level in Spanish speaking. Yeah. And so we do have other languages, like you mentioned, Swahili. And for those, I definitely use the interpreter phone service. But even with my Spanish speaking patients, I'd say maybe five or 10% of the time, if we get into a conversation where I realize that my point isn't getting across because of the nuances in the language, or if I get a sense that there's something that I'm not understanding that the patient is trying to say, and I can tell if they're getting frustrated with me, then I'll try to be very quick with reaching for the interpreter phone for help with those conversations. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I worked with a physician who was Russian or born in Russia and spoke Russian, but she never would tell her patients that she spoke Russian, Mm. her Russian patients, because she grew up speaking Russian with her parents, obviously not learning medical terms in Russian. So she didn't 
want people to come to her thinking that she could just fluently tell them things. And, and I think that's an important thing because I think sometimes you know, we kind of group people like, oh, you speak Spanish, this person speaks Spanish, so you're going to understand everything each other are saying, kind of forgetting like the different dialects and the different kind of levels that people might speak. I mean, even in English, it's like that. So I think that's an important consideration too. Of course. Yeah. And I think another thing that I try and do is not just make that decision myself, but to also make sure the patient feels comfortable making that decision. So, you know, when I'm just introducing myself, when I come in the room, if it's a Spanish speaking patient, I always, you know, introduce myself and then say, you know, my Spanish isn't perfect. So please let me know if there's something you don't understand and we can use the interpreter phone. So making sure that they feel empowered as well to say, hey, I don't think she's getting me. Let's let's use the interpreter. And I just have one more question, too, before we talk more about what you do specifically. When you use an in-person interpreter, you know, obviously with women's care, there's some definitely more intimate experiences. Do you, Have you found that women are comfortable or having an interpreter who, and I don't know anything about this, so I'm speaking totally naively, who may or may not have this medical background? Do they, do you ever experience any resistance with that? You know, Because the clinic I've worked at for the past three years doesn't have in-person, I remember in my medical school training, we had in-person interpreters. And not that I can speak for the patients, but I do feel that having a human there was actually more comforting, even if it was a sensitive topic. I felt that more often than not, I could see the kind of some of the anxiety leave the room when they had a native Spanish speaker in there with them. That makes sense. Yeah. So then, and, and you have kind of rolled this in with a lot of your other answers, but just to kind of really parse this out, then how do you specifically create a woman-centered environment for your patients? That's a really good question. I think, you know, like you gals have talked about just communication, it can't be, the importance of communication cannot be overemphasized. And so I think particularly in women's health, there's sometimes can be a lot of paternalistic or accusatory type of language that's involved. And so trying to avoid that and making it kind of more empowering and shared decision making. So let's use birth control for an example. As providers, we all know the benefit of LARCs, of IUDs. And so as providers, we're really excited to kind of encourage women to use these forms of birth control. And I've heard other providers you know, let's say if a woman chooses a pill and she comes in and she's on the pill and then she comes in for plan B. You know, I've heard providers say things like, well, clearly you, clearly the pill is not for you. Like you need something where you don't, don't have to remember to take every, every day. And I think that sort of language can put, can, it's just uh, overly accusatory that this woman is irresponsible in terms of her own health. But I think a better way of talking about that topic For example, when I'm talking to a woman, I say, you know, the most important thing in terms of choosing a birth control that's right for you is knowing yourself and knowing your schedule and just being really honest with yourself about those things. So me, for example, I have such a crazy work schedule that I know I could never be in a place where I have access to even take a pill at the same time every day because sometimes I'm in with a patient, sometimes I'm in the OR. And so I know that the birth control wouldn't, birth control pill wouldn't be a good option for me. And even something like depot, I have a really hard time getting, getting time off from work 
or an appointment between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. So I know that it wouldn't be a good idea, even if it's every three months, to try to work that into my schedule. And so I just encourage you to think about what your day-to-day looks like. And everyone's life is very different. And so deciding on the options based off of you. And so kind of in that way, trying to use that sort of language, I feel at least kind of takes away that paternalistic and sort of accusatory statements. And even when talking about, you know, also the responsibility is not just on you, you know, have you talked to your partner about getting a vasectomy if if you guys don't plan on having children again in the future? And when discussing the withdrawal method and and things like that, does that make sense? Yeah. And, you know, I think what's kind of really coming to mind is the previous episode, we talked a lot about reproductive justice. And, you know, because you work with a special population in consideration, like undocumented workers, and that maybe there would be a bias to have these women be on a certain type of birth control, like a lark, or I guess I'm just kind of curious, do you find like an intersection between the population you're working with and what they prefer, or how they manage reproductive health, or even how doctors talk to them about it because they might be underinsured or uninsured? That's a good question. In terms of what they prefer, I feel like I've heard a lot of, what's the word, kind of like myths about LARCs, particularly about IUDs, equally from this patient population as in other patient populations. And so I don't know if I can say that there's kind of much of a difference in preference. And sorry, what, can you repeat the second part of your question? I think what I was just trying to get at was, do you ever sense that providers are maybe pushing a certain birth control because of insurance status? That was maybe one part of it. And then do you feel that, well, in in our reproductive justice talk, we talked about how, you know, when you have a lark, that takes a lot of um, reproductive autonomy away because now you are dependent on having to go see a provider to have it taken out or put in. It's not something you can control yourself. And so being undocumented or underinsured, how does that play a role? That's a good question. So I'm thinking of a particular situation. And again, I think in California, we are so, so lucky to, even for women who are uninsured, to be able to provide free birth control, all forms of birth control, even tubal ligation actually is covered. Oh, wow. Yeah. I have a friend who's from, uh, who's living in Louisiana a few years ago, and she got the Nexplanon put in and had actually a pretty severe acne after getting that and knowing her before and after I even brought it up to her and she said yeah I know I went to my doctor to get it taken out because this is so bad and they said my insurance covered putting it in but not taking it out and it would be wow. $170 to take out so I'm just leaving it in <laughs> there was that I mean that was wrong on so many levels wow. in my mind yeah and it's so infuriating number one that she wasn't told that it wouldn't be covered to take it out before it was put in I think that was error part one in the system and I mean I don't know I think I'm trying to think if this was before the mandates were put in through the ACA, but the fact that... I didn't even know that was a I know, the fact that that would be true for any insurance. And part of me wondered if maybe it wasn't true and maybe that was something the provider was saying to just encourage her to keep it in. Mm -hmm. That's what I would wonder. I have witnessed that myself. You know, women who come in and want their IUD out, but 
still not, they don't want to get pregnant, but they just don't like XYZ thing about their IUD and they want to get it taken out and to go on the pills. And I think that sort of decision definitely warrants a conversation with the patient to say, okay, like, what is it that you're unhappy with? Let's talk through this. But it also, you know, it's the woman's choice if she wants to the IUD out just because and she wants to go on birth control pills and or wants to use condoms. And as long as she knows the effectiveness of those options and the side effects of those options, then I mean, that should be the end of the conversation. But I've definitely seen providers, you know, walk in the room and say, oh, you want the IUD out, so you're going to get pregnant. You know that, right? Just, you know, comments like that that I think are completely inappropriate and don't really help the women feel empowered or even safe in, in that sort of environment. Well, I think one question I kind of had, and, and I don't know that this will yield a different answer, but, you know, I'd ask you generally, like, how do you create a woman-centered environment? And you talked about the birth control example and how to talk about that. So I guess, how do you create a woman-centered environment for Spanish-speaking women? Is that any different? You know, obviously you speak Spanish, so that helps. Is there any other techniques that you use? Yeah, for that, I guess I say the, I can't emphasize enough for for providers who don't speak Spanish, just using the interpreter. I think a lot of times we we all know and the importance of communication with patients and language and how important that is to patient-centered care. But then, you know, oftentimes if we're on labor and delivery, let's say, and things are moving fast, everything's happening fast. And so getting out that interpreter phone is takes time. And so I see nurses and other providers who don't speak Spanish often just foregoing that whole step and caring for the patient really with minimal communication. And I understand why, because it's time consuming and it's difficult, but I think we really need to push ourselves to make it a priority because that is not woman-centered, that is not patient-centered to be making decisions and doing things to a woman's body with one or two word explanations, um, because Mm -hmm. that's all that you can get across with the language barrier. Yeah, that really goes into communication. That's sort of where we're coming from. And so not just how you're saying it, but in this case, it's like even understanding it at all. And I think that's really important consideration and a good way of putting it that women deserve more than that. Just these simple explanations that maybe they don't even understand. So aside from using an interpreter, is there any other way that you sort of feel like you create a women-centered environment for any of your patients, but specifically those that maybe are undocumented or uninsured? I guess one thing that's super important is knowing the barriers to care that they will be facing. So whereas if you're working in a clinic with upper middle class woman who is English speaking with private insurance, um, you write a prescription and you give it to her and then you assume the rest kind of is done. But I think just being aware that, for example, in our clinic, I can't just write a prescription and assume the patient can get it. And I need to go the extra step to kind of figure out to ensure that she is going to get it to close that loop. So just to give you one example, I remember when I was earlier on in my training, I had a woman who was uninsured and she had BV 
bacterial vaginosis and was having some pretty intense symptoms. And in my mind, I made an assumption that because she doesn't have insurance that the metronidazole gel would be cheaper than the metronidazole pill. So I prescribed that. And she came to see me a month later and still with the same symptoms because she went to the pharmacy and the gel was actually $80. And after doing a little bit of research, I found out that the pill was only was only $7. So just going that extra step to figure those things out beforehand, before the woman leaves your office. I remember another mother who needed her son to see a specialist, a pediatric cardiologist down in the city, which is about an hour and a half away. And the the son was covered under Medicaid. And so I knew that visit would be covered, but I forgot to talk to the mom and make sure that she actually had a way of getting her son to the appointment. There's really no good public transportation options from where we are down to the city. And she didn't have a car. And again, this was something that I found out only months later when she never went to the appointment, I found out why. And so again, these were mistakes that I think I made a lot more of when I was in the beginning of my training. And now I really try to make a conscious effort beforehand to make sure that they are able to get the care that they need rather than, you know, finding out months later that they weren't weren't able to. I think this is great. And I'd like to unpack this a little more. So you'd mentioned, you know, being aware and, and, you know, and thinking about that stuff. But are there questions that now you think to like ask patients to assess this? Or you mentioned, you know, can they afford this prescription or can they get there? Are there other things that we need to think about? Or again, questions that we should be asking patients to make sure that they can get the care that they need? Yeah, so transportation is one that comes up really often. And this isn't just transportation down to specialist appointment in the cities. But even I had a gal who I was doing her prenatal care and she needed uh, weekly McKenna injections to reduce her risk of preterm labor. And for those of you who aren't familiar with progesterone injections, you really only start them if the woman is able to continue them throughout the pregnancy, because if you do a few and then stop them, there's a theoretical risk of actually causing preterm labor from the progesterone withdrawal. So before starting (laughs) this woman on the injections, just making sure to ask her like, okay, this is something that you have to come back for weekly. And if, and if you can't get back to the clinic, it's actually kind of dangerous to not get the injection to miss a week. So like, let me know now with your work schedule. Are you able to take off of work every week for a couple hours? Do you have a car to get here? Do you have someone to watch your three-year-old and your 10-month-old? So I think asking the questions about transportation, asking the questions about childcare, asking the questions about getting off from work, because if you have a, if you're doing a job that kind of a service job, sometimes under the table, they don't, you know, you're, you don't have those same protections that you would if you had a union job in terms of paid time off and things like that. So just asking those questions up front is something that I do regularly now. And do you find that your patients are fine with these questions or appreciate them or do they ever get offended? No, I've never had someone get offended, but I'm sure that's, okay. a, that's a definitely possible reaction to have. Yeah, and I think that's what some I've heard some providers say. And so I did, wasn't sure if that was sort of something that we were just worried about as providers and that was sort of unfounded. So that's why I wondered if you had actually experienced anyone being offended by that line of questioning. No, I haven't. I'm sure that's a potential reaction and I'm sure it's also kind of 
not what you say, but how you say it. So again, I just try to come from a really understanding place. Even when counseling women on medication versus procedural abortion, letting them know for a medication abortion, you're going to have to like have to be home, you're going to have to be near a toilet for the day. And so if you can't take like, are you able to take off of work for that day? If not, then this is going to be really difficult for you. And so I think they appreciate just that level of honesty and really giving them the choice, providing them all the information, but still leaving the choice up to them. Not saying, rather than saying, oh, you definitely can't get a medication. You definitely shouldn't use the medication. You need a procedure because you won't be able to take off from work. So I think it just really depends on kind of how you say it and making sure that you're still leaving the decision up to them. And I don't know the answer to this because I don't prescribe medication. So how does that work? You know, as a provider, is there a way for you to easily know how much something costs? Like if something is cheaper, you know, like you talked about the gel versus the pill. Are there any resources for providers to know that? Or is that something you had to call the pharmacy and ask? Yeah, unfortunately, there is not a great way. And I end up calling the pharmacy at our clinic at our FQHC we have a pharmacy within the clinic, so it's a little bit easier. I know the extension to the pharmacy, and I just call and say, hey, out of pocket, how much is, and you know, I tell them the prescription, and then they can tell me, and it takes a, just a few minutes. If a provider didn't have access to this type of pharmacy within the FQHC, and we get, because of the grant money, it's medications are at a much lower cost than they otherwise would be. There are definitely tricks Different pharmacies have $4 lists for some vital medications like Walmart and Target, I think, participates now. And using GoodRx.com for some of the less common medicines that tend to be more expensive, oftentimes you can get a coupon off there. You know, you can make the decision like, hey, I'm going to let the patient figure this out, or you can take the time as a provider. And even using your support staff too, to help the patient to figure it out. Because if I'm an upper middle class woman with a formal education, and I need to navigate the internet and calling pharmacies, I think that's a lot easier than if I'm a monolingual Spanish speaking patient, who doesn't have a laptop and access to the internet at home to figure out how to get a medication that I can afford. Yeah, I think that's a good consideration, too, is if you don't have time using your support staff for some of those. But I think, yeah, I can't even tell you how many times I've worked in an office where we prescribe something and it's really expensive. And, you know, the providers just don't know this information, but I think patients think we do. (laughs) And unfortunately, we just don't. So I think trying to be that middle person and help out as much as we can with that. And then also, you know, using support systems to try to do these prior authorizations, because I've also seen where it almost seems like clinics sort of don't want to do that because of the, it does take a lot of time. And just sort of letting the patient figure it out is is not always going to happen or be the easiest thing for them. Yeah. Well, and prior authorizations are like a whole nother story. I mean, I have <laughs> yeah. had some like nightmares of, you know, dealing with prior authorizations. And, you know, again, here I'm the the nurse or working with the doctor and, you know, we struggle to get the prior authorization. I couldn't imagine sometimes what patients have to go through to try and figure this out too. 
Yeah. And so also I try to be upfront with them. So if it's a, let's say there's a medication I've never prescribed before. And so I'm not, and for some reason I can't figure out if it's covered or not. I'll tell them, Hey, this, if you go to the pharmacy and this is something you can't afford, like if this ends up being 50 or $60, call back and let us know because there's some other ones, similar medicines that we can try in the same class that might be cheaper. So just letting them know if you go to the pharmacy and this ends up being cost prohibitive, that's not the end of it. You don't just have to go without it. Writing in the comment section when I write prescriptions, I always, always put can substitute alternative formulary that's covered by insurance or that is cheaper so that the pharmacy then is empowered to change the prescription. I mean, they can't change it to com- completely like they can't change from amoxicillin to penicillin, but they can at least change, you know, if something an alternative formulary. So if the cream is cheaper than the gel, or if the 400 milligram tablets are half the price of the 200 milligram tablets, then they can just make those small changes. Well, and I think this is an important question, just kind of, you know, even stepping back a little bit more about patient cost, insurance coverage, and also how costs can impact, you know, what doctors prescribe or can't prescribe or what procedures, you know, can can limit what doctors can do as well. And I'm just curious, have you ever been in a situation where patient says, I can't afford this medication or this procedure? And has it negatively impacted their health or your ability to effectively practice? Definitely. Yes, <laughs> to both those questions. Like I said, having worked when I was in medical school, I spent a lot of time at an FQHC in New Jersey. And just the difference between the resources that we have at our clinic in California versus New Jersey, there's so much more that we can do in terms of helping get things covered for patients, but still there's huge gaps. With medications, we again are lucky enough to have our pharmacy that kind of can make the price even cheaper. But I have patients who they can't afford. They have, I have one woman I'm thinking of who has MS and has asthma and needs, has pretty bad asthma, has been hospitalized a few times and just cannot afford the monthly cost of one of her controller inhalers. So she just doesn't buy it every month and then ends up in the hospital a couple times a year. And so that is a case definitely where looking from a systems point of view would be so much cheaper and so much better for the patient to just cover the 70 bucks for the inhaler every month rather than covering the cost of a hospitalization for her. It just, I mean, things like that come up daily. And procedures, I have a woman who is uninsured, monolingual Spanish speaking, that I'm not working right now. I'm actually on vacation in New Jersey, but I've been on the phone with her almost daily because she broke her, had a really, really bad fracture in her elbow. It's displaced. It's intraarticular. She went to the ER. She needs, it's a fracture that needs surgery in order to maintain the function of that arm. And it's her right, it's her right dominant hand. And uh, they told her, they put it on a splint and said, follow up with orthopedic surgery as an outpatient because you need surgery. Of course, she doesn't have insurance and is not able to even get an appointment with an orthopedic surgeon with no way to pay for it, uh, let alone a surgery. And so for the past week and a half now, we've been trying to figure out how to get this to happen for her. Still without success as of yesterday, but things like this come up all the time. 
do you feel like this comes up pretty regularly within like women's health care as far as, you know, pat pelvic, those type of procedures? Or do you feel like those get pretty well covered? Yeah. So this is one of the things that in California, like I was saying, it's very unique because this stuff would come up all the time in uh, when I was working in New Jersey for women who are uninsured. They couldn't get their paps covered. They couldn't get their mammals covered. We have a special program in California called Family Pact. And for women who are uninsured, mostly undocumented women, it covers all forms of birth control and it covers all forms of women's health screening. So that includes STD screening, pap smears, mammograms. And so where I'm working right now, that's actually never an issue. But I know that we are super, super lucky and very unique to have that sort of program. And when talking to friends, providers in other states, I know that that's a huge issue and that I've definitely heard patient stories of not having access to that screening, which we know is super important. And then they show up in the clinic with cancer and then have trouble even to get that treated because they still don't have funding. And I don't know if this is something you could speak to, but, you know, when you talk to those friends or, you know, if we have listeners in those areas who don't have these programs like California has, and they too are serving underinsured, uninsured, undocumented, I mean, do you have any tips or ideas on how to navigate that? Not having the money or the ability to pay for these procedures or... Yeah. And it's not my specialty, but I know that some of the services that we have in our clinic are the sole, only were able to happen because of one person working on getting grant money to cover, you know, a particular thing. And so I think a lot of times maybe the money is out there from some, from some private grant sources or from some state funds, but it does require a lot of work on a systems level to then set that up in your particular area and to get access to those funds. There are some other services that we provide in the clinic that are just only able to happen from private kind of private donation funds. So I think just again, doing the work to try and get if you see that that's a gap in the care um, where you are. I know in the states that, you know, after the ACA, we all know that now all of those things are mandated to be included in terms of like screening and birth control. And the thought that some of that stuff is going to get rolled back or changed, I think, as healthcare providers, whether doctors, nurses, whoever, we are responsible for advocating to keep those things in place, because we know how important those things are to, to health. Yeah, that's really important. I don't know if I can kind of switch gears a little bit and go back to some of the things I think that you hit on a little bit earlier that we didn't get into in too much detail, but with your kind of special population, you had mentioned some myths, I think it was surrounding larks specifically, but can you talk more about, you know, sort of what of the, what those myths are, or are there myths with other things that are important in women's health that you think providers should kind of be aware of? I think every patient has a different level of health literacy, and oftentimes that varies based off of your formal education. And so working with a patient population who tends to have a lower level of formal education, they tend to have a lower health literacy level. And so I think I've just been reminded again and again how important patient education is. So for example, in terms of explaining diseases, so like in women's health, 
This would mean answering questions like, how did I get this yeast infection? Or why did I have a miscarriage? Or why is my pap smear abnormal? And so I think for women who have gone through a lot of formal education, they might understand that a yeast infection isn't an STD. But I think that's an assumption that as providers, we often make that women know that, oh, it's just a yeast infection. It's not dangerous. It's not an STD. But I've had women who were very, very scared after being told that they had a yeast infection. And then after talking with them more, I realized it's because they thought it meant that their husband and the father of their kids was cheating on them and gave them this STD. And so, Yikes. yeah. And so I think it's really, really important as providers, because for women's health topics, um, these are super sensitive topics. And often it can be something that's difficult or awkward for a patient to bring up for a woman to ask about, even if they're thinking about them and if even if they're worrying about them. So I think as providers, it's really our responsibility to open up these conversations. And so when you're telling a woman she has a yeast infection, I think it's really important that you then explain what that is, what that means for her, how yeast infections come about, whether or not she looks worried or whether or not she asks you any questions about it. Same thing with miscarriages. I've had women who thought that they had a miscarriage because they ate something really spicy the day before or because they had sex with their partner the day before or because their job is very physical and they were doing heavy lifting the day before. And, you know, those, those, that type of guilt can be carried lifelong for a woman, especially if she, the pregnancy ends further on in the second or the third trimester. For years and years, women can carry this guilt with them. And so I think as providers, it's so, so important that we start that conversation and educate them. Even as an Another personal example, my mother had six kids, but her first pregnancy was with twins and had a fetal demise late in the third trimester. And for her whole life, she thought it was because she she worked at a store. And so she did a lot of heavy lifting with boxes leading up to that time. And so for the past 25 years, she kind of blamed herself for that. Whereas once I became a physician and kind of asked some more questions about it, I realized really that she had mono mono twins. And as you know, as you guys know, the risk of fetal demise in that particular situation is over 50% just because of the risk of, you know, the cord basically getting tangled. But no one had ever told her that. The doctor never explained that. And so I think as women, we often put the onus on ourselves, we put the blame on ourselves. And so as providers, it's really important that we are doing a good job communicating with patients. So how do you specifically break down in like the situation where the woman thought that she ate spicy food and that's why she had a miscarriage? What was that conversation like with her? How did you unpack that? Yeah, so I try and start off by kind of normalizing it. And so about 20% of pregnancies end in miscarriage. And so that's one in five. And so that's kind of the first thing I say is even though a lot of women don't talk about it to each other, because it's a hard thing to talk about, this is actually a pretty common thing about one in five pregnancies will end in miscarriage. And majority of the time, uh, medically speaking, we don't know why. It has nothing to do with anything you ate or anything you did the day before or any exercise you did or anything that you didn't do. They're usually just kind of random errors 
random genetic errors that happen for no reason. And that's kind of how I explain it. Yeah, I think that's really important. Uh, you know, obviously not just in any special population, but um, in anyone at all. And I think even educated people might hold some of these myths about certain diseases or just some misconceptions even. So to always sort of approach that, not just how are we going to treat this or deal with this situation, but reassuring them of what caused it is really important. What did it cause it? Yeah, and oftentimes too, I'll finish it by saying, you know, when you and your partner are ready in the future, if you try for another pregnancy, there's really nothing that you can be doing differently. You're, it would be the same stuff in terms of taking your prenatals and avoiding drugs and alcohol, which you did during this pregnancy. And so just keep on the same path. And so in terms of the things that we do know, you know, for example, if methamphetamine use is very high in the area that I practice. So if a woman was using meth daily in the first trimester, and we know that that does increase her risk for miscarriage. And so that's something that I'll definitely address if it's if it's there. But if and any woman who comes out who comes for her first pregnancy visit, I always ask about those things. And so if she wasn't someone who was using drugs or didn't have some sort of trauma to her abdomen or anything else that we know may have led to the miscarriage, then I continue with that explanation. I think we could probably do a whole nother podcast or talk to you even just about working with drug use and how to navigate that. So we'll try not to go too deep into that, but no, very interesting. And my other question kind of keeping in with the myths and and by no means am I trying to make us sound like if you have Spanish speaking populations, this is what you need to know, or, you know, that this is the end all be all solutions, but, or that, you know, you speak for all women, but I'm just kind of curious if there are any other cultural considerations or cultural things that you've ran into that are maybe unique to Spanish speaking women that impact maybe their decision-making or the care or myths or anything else? One other thing that I've noticed that's come up quite a bit is the efficacy of the withdrawal method, particularly with my Spanish-speaking patients. I've often heard when asking about birth control methods, a woman say, oh, el me cuida, like, oh, he takes care of me. And it took me a little bit of time to figure out that that means that they're using the withdrawal method. And I think it's a common misconception across the boards that this is an effective form of birth control, but there seems to be an added layer of kind of responsibility entangled with this ideal of el me cuida, that he's doing me a favor, you know, he's taking care of me in this way to prevent me from getting pregnant by withdrawing before he orgasms. And so not only I think on the one hand, is this just a misconception of the efficacy of withdrawal method, but on the other hand, there's this idea of that the what it means for a, for your sexual partner to take care of you, not that he is making the sex pleasurable for you, but that he in his own pleasure is reducing the risk of pregnancy for you. And so I I try to talk about both those things. Does that make sense? Kind of that second half of like, well, is that yeah, is that really taking, you know, care of you? Is that what you want? Is that what you're looking for out of out of sex as a woman? No, I would just like you to maybe walk us through that conversation and how do you unpack that? 
Yeah. So the first thing, just kind of asking, well, what does that mean to you? And then I think the answer is often just that, you know, he's, he's making sure that I don't get pregnant. And so taking that separately and talking about the efficacy of the withdrawal method, that's kind of one part of the conversation and the fact that it is not very effective. And then the second part of the conversation being, well, what else are you looking for in your sex life besides avoiding pregnancy? Like what else is important to you? And then really having them answer the conversation. And and for some women, then they'll start talking about the fact that maybe their sexual needs aren't the focus. And for other women, they're in a place where that's not important to them. They It doesn't bother them that they're, that the focus of the sex is not on both male and female orgasm. And that's okay too. Um, if that, you know, if that's what's important to them, just supporting them in that. We've really embedded a lot of this within the podcast itself, but we usually like to end talking about maybe just some like quick tips for providers. Cause you know, again, I think that you're in a very unique position being in California and the, there's a lot of resources there, but in so much of the rest of the country and even where we're at in Iowa and Kansas, those resources don't necessarily exist. So maybe if you have just some tips for other providers who work with Spanish speaking women, if you can speak to that. Yeah. And it's like you said, it's stuff that we have already kind of touched upon is really just instead of making assumptions, just asking why didn't, why aren't they taking their blood pressure medication? Was it because they weren't able to pick it up from the pharmacy because they couldn't afford it or because they didn't have a ride to the pharmacy? Or was it because their husband told them not to take it? Um, these are all things that I've heard. And I think just calling, you know, labeling someone as non-compliant tends to be a knee-jerk thing, but really figuring out why they're making the decisions they're making is really, really important to good care. Are there any last things you'd like to add before we wrap up? Um. Just also to, to take a step back and realize that as providers, we're in a great position to do some systems level advocacy uh, for Definitely. good patient care. Yeah. And just quickly, briefly, do you mind sharing with the listeners sort of what activities you currently are doing for advocacy? Yeah. So this is something that I've only started doing in the past year and a half is to get involved really on a local and statewide level to advocate for kind of bigger things like universal health care, which I think is super, super important. Um, and in California, there was actually a bill up in the legislature recently for California to have its own kind of universal Medicare. I've spoken at the County Board of Supervisors meetings to advocate for different local issues like making our county a sanctuary county, which would provide some protections for our undocumented patients. I've been doing a lot of advocacy focusing around criminal justice reform and healthcare access in jails and prisons, and then translating that to setting up patients for success when they're released from jail. I've had a lot of patients who come to the clinic who were diagnosed with diabetes and put on insulin while they were in jail and then released without any prescriptions or without any information about local clinics, about where they can establish care, and then you know met them for the first time in the hospital when they were in DKA. And so just trying to improve that transition period after release 
and the care that they get while they're um, incarcerated. And then some particularly women's health stuff. When Planned Parenthood was facing a lot of defunding threats in the past 10 months. I've gone to rallies at in Sacramento, California State Capitol, and spoken with legislators, our local California state legislators, to try and help protect that funding. So different things like that. Yeah, we're actually working on right now, I've, um, we've just started emailing with a, uh, another provider who specifically kind of has a niche expertise in advocating for the ACA and single payer system. So we're working on right now um, scheduling some things so that we could talk to her and, and in the future release a podcast just essentially addressing that, you know, with, with the insurance and kind of at the both two levels, you know, how does insurance affect how doctors communicate and then also how does that affect women as well. So I think that's certainly something that we plan to get into in the future and especially since it's a very hot topic right now. <laughs> yeah, that sounds amazing. I would love to to hear more about that. It's all about education. I feel like if people, if everyone really understood what a universal healthcare system meant, I, I feel like most people would support it. It's just there's so many myths out there about what it means for providers and for patients. And so I think really the biggest thing that needs to be done at this point is just education around the topic um, in order to get people to support it. Well, and I think especially myths and, and struggles with undocumented population and paying for healthcare for them, that's obviously a big point of contention for conservative mm -hmm. arguments is, you know, why are we paying for their insurance? And, you know, that's obviously, a, again, a whole nother podcast that hopefully we'll be doing, but something that obviously affects you and much of your patient base. Definitely, definitely. I, I will refrain from answering that question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know, I was like, do I bring it up? Not to get I know, to political. Yeah, I, say, I know yeah. this is going to like, really open up a can of worms. Um, so we'll just kind of leave it as neutral right now that, you know, it, it's a point of discussion. And we'll we'll likely get into kind of the more the nuances of that. It, it, like I said, in the podcast that we're sort of working on getting lined up right now. So, but no, I need it to be acknowledged just because that's obviously a population that's very important to you and the work that you do. So it certainly affect you and them. Any other questions, Stephanie? I don't think so. Is there anything else that you wanted to add that we didn't touch on? No, I just want to thank you two so, so much for inviting me to do this and just having me on. It was great to talk with you, ladies. And good luck to both of you in the <laughs> coming days and months. You're inspiring. Oh, thank you. You are too. <laughs> We've actually felt incredibly lucky. I think every time we get off the phone with somebody, I tell Stephanie, I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to be their best friend and they're my new hero. And she's like, you say that after we talk to everybody. <laughs> but it's true. And, and yeah. We've been so lucky. It is true. You know, we've been, I mean, we're only a few podcasts in. We've talked to, are you, would she be our fifth person? Stephanie? I think so. Yeah. And, or that we've recorded with already. And and every time we're like, oh my gosh, these people are doing such amazing work and they're taking time out of their busy schedules <laughs> to talk to us, you know? So uh, we we feel incredibly lucky that, that you and others have been so receptive to what we're doing. And, you know, we know that we are trying to tap into a very busy population. So we're just really appreciative of the time that that people are giving to us to record this and talk about this. And, and hopefully we can get this up and off the ground really well. And you can get your important work out to a lot of people. 
Yeah. And for those listening, yeah, if there's something that you want to talk about or, you know, have an expertise in something, please, please reach out to us via email or check out our website. So I'm just going to officially say we'd both like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. And and hopefully we can stay in touch. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nicole and Stephanie. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of WChat. Are you looking for ways to support us? Check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash WCH. And that's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And subscribe so that you can help us keep the show going while getting awesome extras. Want to be a part of the show? Go to our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com and send us an email. Otherwise, be sure to follow us on Twitter at woman underscore centered and Facebook. Facebook.